0: In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Welcome visitors to the No Sleep Magic Shop, I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week we conjure spells for you about the mysterious impermanence of death. We here at the podcast like to make sure our great writers get the attention they deserve, so I'd like to spotlight two of our authors this week. First, a big congratulations goes out to Gemma Amour for being selected as a finalist for the prestigious Stoker Awards for her novel Dear Laura, in the category Superior Achievement in a First Novel. It's quite an honour, so we wish Gemma the best of luck. And if even more new reading material is on your mind, I'd like to let you know about a new novel called Face the Music by Mark Tows. As a two-time contributor to the No Sleep podcast, and after inclusion in 20 anthologies and over 30 international magazines, Mark has released his debut collection called Face the Music. Marks always loves stories with a twist, his influencers being the likes of Hitchcock, King, and Poe. Mark says he likes to take readers on a ride, but in the end, he wants to throw them from the carriage. Face the Music is a collection of 23 stories that do exactly that. Both Dear Laura and Face the Music are currently haunting the Amazon charts and are available in both paperback or on Kindle. Check the show notes for more details about both of these excellent novels. And while reading is fine, it's time now for your ears to absorb our horror stories. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we meet a man who's just inherited a house. And one important thing when moving into an old property is checking that the plumbing is up to code. It's also important to explore any strange dark tunnels you might find under the house while doing that inspecting. And in this tale, shared with us by author Bradley Bloomfield, that tunnel contains some mighty strange things related to a series of children's books from the 1900s. Performing this tale is Atticus Jackson. So it's very important that you don't be late for A Date with Uncle Wiggly.
1: Uncle Wiggly was a popular children's book character back in the early 1900s. I had never heard about him until a couple of days ago when I discovered a variety of old game pieces underneath the floorboards of my house. There was a leak in the bathroom and I had to pull up the tiles and floorboards to see what was going on underneath. And I really hoped that I didn't have to replace any of the old copper piping. It had served me well thus far, despite the age. It definitely wasn't up to code. This was an old house, mind you. It had been my grandfather's, and he had left it to me in his will. I just hadn't wanted to pull the whole system apart if I didn't have to, because I knew the copper piping was still fairly sturdy, if not a bit leaky. But imagine my surprise when, after pulling up the first board that showed signs of water damage, I found a small yellow index card. Carefully wrapped around the piping with a piece of faded yellow string. I untied it and looked at what it read. Take a red card and do just as it says. I was extremely confused. I posted the photo on social media, trying to see if anyone knew what the mysterious card could be. The text looked like it had been meticulously printed out on an old fashioned typewriter. It wasn't long before I got a response. Uncle Wiggly. I decided that, while creepy, it wasn't really anything worth looking into. Perhaps a prank conceived by some previous resident's children. I decided to dismiss it as such and proceed with my work as normal. At least, that was until I found the second card. It wasn't too far from the first. There was more space underneath the house than I had ever thought. Underneath the bathroom. The floor began to slant farther down into the earth. There was an opening large enough for a grown man to comfortably crawl on his hands and knees. The copper plumbing, surprisingly, continued to lead down this new area. My grandfather had never mentioned a crawl space under the floor before, not even in his will after he died. With morbid curiosity, I made up my mind and decided to explore this opening. It wasn't long before I saw the next card. It was red this time, and affixed to the piping with a matching red string. It read, Hello little bunny, you're off to the races, you're well on your way, now continue three paces. What the hell was going on here? Maybe this was too elaborate to be a mere children's prank. I could feel the hairs on my neck and arms starting to stand at attention. It was cold, wet, and damp underneath my rickety old house. The tunnel was pitch black, and the light coming in through the hole in my bathroom floor was slowly fading away as I continued further into the tunnel. I knew I shouldn't, but curiosity was getting the better of me. I continued until I saw the next card, tied with yellow string. It read, Once again, take three hops more. Is that the skisix at your door? I wanted to turn back, but it was only three hops, right? I could vaguely still see the light behind me, trickling down through the floorboards all across the house. And of course, the hole from whence I had descended into this odd subterranean tunnel. I wasn't far from where the house was, perhaps in between my house and my neighbor's. Our neighborhood was, by most accounts, your typical quiet suburb in the Midwest, where most people weren't exactly friendly, but at least cordial. I knew that I would have to turn back eventually, as it would become too dark for me to read the cards. I didn't want to venture further into this place without ample supplies, in case things got bad, I got lost, or I couldn't find my way out. Could my house have been involved in the Underground Railroad? if so i could be looking at something perhaps much much more important than simple bathroom renovations i began to lose myself in delusions of grandeur until i saw the next card red this time hanging from a wooden arch support above my head the ceiling by this point was about 10 or 15 feet above me and i no longer had to crawl i was now standing fully upright but hadn't even noticed the change, as mystified as I was by the strange place I found myself within. The next card read, You'd best turn back. The skeezix is near. Be a good rabbit. Flee now in fear. Underneath this unnerving rhyme were the words, Move five paces back. Before I even had a chance to register what I had read, something flew at me at a remarkable speed. I heard the unmistakable cawing of an excited crow, and several of its coal-black feathers fell onto the ground beneath where I had been standing. I was already gone. I ran up to where the passageway had started to incline and crawled the rest of the way back to my bathroom. I crawled out of the tunnel expecting to see the poor bird madly flapping its wings, flying around my bathroom, desperately trying to escape. The door and the window were both closed, so I had thought the creature would be trapped there. But I was alone. I decided very quickly that the hole to the passage was to be left open until I could better prepare myself for an expedition back down into it. I needed to do more research on the Uncle Wiggly board game itself, find out what the hell a skeezix was and buy or gather the necessary supplies in order to fully explore and i spent the rest of the evening doing this first learning the basic rules of the game it was a classic variation on the european goose game which involved a race to the finish line on a board of 100 spaces the red cards could either help or harm you and the yellow cards were used primarily for forward progression The standard playtime of a single game could vary, but was usually about 30 minutes. Each yellow card could move you 1 to 15 spaces forward, and each red card had a special action, or could potentially move you 5 spaces back. It reminded me a bit of Candyland, and its many variations that I used to play when I was a child. Uncle Wiggly himself was usually described as a kindly old rabbit with a barbershop striped walking stick, who couldn't move very well due to an infliction of rheumatism. His main antagonist was usually the Pip Sizwa, a rhinoceros-esque bully who was typically accompanied by his mischief-loving cohorts, the crow-like Skeezix. though a revolving door myriad of predatory animals were less commonly featured, usually wanting to take a bite out of Uncle Wiggly's ears. These were children's books, mind you. They couldn't get too violent. I wasn't comforted by any of this information. The crow that flew past my head… did I just imagine it? Was it just an odd coincidence that the card I found mentioned the crow-like skeezics right before the bird nearly attacked me? I felt like I was losing my mind. I needed to get my head straight. I was determined to go back into that tunnel, dammit. But I wasn't going unarmed. I packed a small drawstring sack with several bottles of water, some protein bars, a 500-lumen headlamp I had bought last time I went camping, some matches, a good pocket knife to cut the cards down more easily, and finally, a SNW 8-shot 9mm revolver that my grandfather had left me with the house. The next morning, when I knew the sun would be shining the brightest through the floorboards, I crawled back in. The bathroom faced the east side of the property and got plenty of sun early in the day. To my surprise and discontentment, there was a new yellow card awaiting me, at the exact same place the first one was. It read, You've read all the rules, you know how to play. Uncle saw it all. Can you win today? Someone had placed this here during the night. They were watching me as I was on my computer, researching. They must have seen me there through the cracks in the floorboards, looking at image after image of Uncle Wiggly and his animal friends. This little game had just gotten a lot more serious. Someone was living underneath my house, and they had decided to have a bit of sick fun with me. It was a good thing I had my grandfather's revolver on me. This son of a bitch had been watching me for God knows how long, and if I needed to defend myself against him to win, then so be it. There was a change to the tunnel today. In messy, bright yellow paint, the previously barren stone floor that descended into darkness was now separated into what looked like giant game spaces. I was currently at one. I decided, perhaps unwisely, to play along until I could find the bastard that did this. I looked at the card again, but no further instructions were given until I turned it over. On the back were four simple words. Unlike the text on the front, which was still neatly typed out like the cards from yesterday, it was handwritten in sloppy black ink. Move forward six paces. I took a deep breath to steady myself. My nerves were on fire, and I was sweating profusely. I was scared, sure, but more than that, I was angry. This was my family's house, and it belonged to me, not some deranged lunatic pretending to be some children's book character from a hundred years ago. 7. I found a red card. My pocket knife was in one hand, my gun at my side. I hadn't yet flicked on my headlamp as it was still fairly easy to see, but I went ahead and did so, just to be cautious. I thought I saw the glint of something metal further down into the passage, but I waved it off his nerves. I didn't know how far ahead of me this guy was. I didn't know if the tunnel continued straight and, at this point, I was still on my hands and knees. No sudden moves here, I had to be smart. The card read. I don't know about you, but I know what I saw. Move four more spaces, but beware Pipsaizwa. Eleven. This was easy. I was growing cocky. If my intruder thought he was going to scare me, he was wrong. I was unnerved, but there was no way he could recreate anything that resembled a giant rhino in such a cramped space. I turned around for a moment just to make sure I could still see the hole where I first entered the tunnel. It was gone. My gaze met solid brick. I had never liked small spaces, but I wouldn't say I was claustrophobic. But this was a new level of trapped, beyond anything I had experienced before. The air suddenly felt stale as it went into my lungs. I was sweating profusely. That's when I noticed a small yellow card stuck to the middle of the wall with old chewing gum. Tentatively, I pulled it away and read the two measly words that were written on its surface in capital letters. Wrong Way. It was clear to me now that this was no ordinary tunnel. I was dealing with something else. Something malevolent and beyond my comprehension. I looked down at my feet and saw that somehow, the number I was standing on had changed from an 11 to a 10. I suppose I had incurred a penalty for attempting to turn away, even though my intention in doing so was not to run away, but I wanted to run now. My adrenaline was pumping at full blast, and it was by sheer force of will I remained where I stood, despite the blaring alarms in my brain all telling me to get the hell out of there. In my younger years, I had served time in the military. They had trained me fairly well not to immediately give in to my fight or flight, or at least subdue the flight and focus solely on the fight. The only way through this ordeal was forwards. So forwards was the direction I headed. My breaths came in heaves, and I was feeling a bit lightheaded. I fished a bottle of water out of my drawstring pack and took a break at sixteen to allow myself a small sip, which helped to steady my nerves immensely. I only wished that it had been whiskey. At twenty I had to instinctively dodge out of the way, rolling forward as a pair of objects inexplicably smashed together where I had just been standing. I had enough clearance on twenty-one to roll to a full stop as it was longer than the other spaces I had been walking on before. The floor had continued to slant downwards until 19, where it leveled out flat again. I was glad my reflexes were still working, and once I had caught myself, I whirled around, gun at the ready, to see what had just tried to kill me. It was a pair of oversized rhino horns, one much longer than the other. If I had been looking where I was going, the horns closed in front of me, I could have used the lower one to vault over and through a small opening the two created when fully closed. My headlamp caught the glint of something hanging from a piece of yellow string off on the tip of the upper horn. It was a silver key, and attached to it was my next card. I was now at twenty-one, and after climbing up and cutting down my prize, I slumped down against the wall, exhausted. It was time for me to unwrap and nibble on a protein bar as I read the next card. It read, Save the key, you'll need it later. Advance nine more, but mind the gator. I was baffled by what I had just read, but I decided to pocket the key and heed the card's words, lest something even worse happen to me if I did not have it later on. I'd had a close call just then, and honestly, I was beginning to think, I might die down here. This went far beyond some crazed intruder in a previously undiscovered crawlspace. I was now playing for my life, and the gravity of that had not fully hit me until I had nearly been crushed by Pip Sizwa's horns. I looked again at the new card in my hand now just one of many that were stored neatly away in my backpack. It was almost as if I felt that holding on to them would somehow make this whole experience more real. I was in the middle of a nightmare. I had lost my mind. I had died I was now being judged in some ridiculous version of purgatory. All of these were better explanations than what I was actually experiencing. The truth was, sometimes things just shouldn't be uncovered. Why I had decided to renovate the plumbing in the first place was beyond me. I could have lived with a bit of black mold, some safety fines for code violations, easy. After I would gotten out of the army, this was exactly the kind of thing I wanted to avoid. I had no spouse, no children, not even a pet. I didn't want for much. I had no one to answer to or worry for. I was the perfect target, I realized for whatever had gotten a hold of me, and now wouldn't let me go. The spaces were longer apart now. If I looked up, I could no longer see any indication of a ceiling above me. It had started inclining after the rhino horns. I can't tell you how long I had been walking. In the commotion earlier, I'd somehow lost my wristwatch. I estimated it had been about a half an hour, maybe an hour since 21. I was now at 28. I made it a point to be a lot more observant of my surroundings, so it wasn't too much of a surprise when, at 30, I stumbled upon a tall metal safe in the floor. It was skinny, and only took up about half of 30's space. I took out the key in my pocket almost immediately and heard a satisfying click as it readily turned into place. Inside of the safe was a single item a blue umbrella with a hooked handle. It looked exactly like the one I had seen in photos of old Uncle Wiggly books. Something turned in my stomach as I realized what it was for, too. In one story, Uncle Wiggly used an umbrella just like the one I now held in my hands to fend off one of his tormentors, who was, at the moment, trying to take a large chunk out of his ear. No. I dared to speak out loud. Not to anyone in particular. I had a good idea of what I was about to have to do. There was a red card tied neatly to the umbrella. It read... Whether you lose your left or lose your right, you'll lose one or the other in your upcoming plight. No spaces to move. Beyond me was nothing but darkness. The crudely painted game board spaces had been replaced with red arrows, and the path now diverged into three different tunnels. Left. Center. Right. Suddenly I heard a deep croaking coming from the center tunnel. Two yellow eyes, small at first, but quickly becoming as large and bright as headlights. Two slits of pupils gazed hungrily at me, boring into my soul, predator to prey. I had three options, and I had to choose quickly. The light from my headlamp allowed me to better distinguish the creature quickly approaching me. It walked on hind legs and was covered in pale green scales from head to toe. It had long appendages with viciously sharp claws protruding forward, facing me. I pulled my revolver on it and fired twice, aiming once for the heart and once for the brain. I knew it would be a futile attempt. But it felt damn good to see the monster halt in its approach, surprised both at the sound and the sudden flash of light. My ears rang, and holstering my revolver once more, I grabbed at the umbrella and ran straight at the creature. I opened it right in his mouth, just as I had seen Uncle Wiggly do in the books, and was surprised when it worked. I caught a nasty slash on my right shoulder from his claws so I veered immediately to the left tunnel and began running. He must have grabbed the umbrella, cast it aside, because before I began darting away, the bastard caught me in my right ear, just as the card told me he would. He wasn't too fast. I had done a bit of damage with my umbrella. I think the tip of it went through his mouth. I pressed my hand to the side of my head bleeding profusely from my wounds as I felt the strength to carry on leaving my body. But after what seemed like an eternity of running, the tunnel opened back up into a wider passageway, and I dared to look behind me to see the one I had just came from completely vanish from sight. It was here. I cut off a couple strips of my shirt with my pocket knife as I slumped down against the wall to the floor. I looked at the number beneath me. 50. I took the bottle of water I had in my pack and cleaned my wounds. I drank what was left in the bottle and allowed myself an exhale of pain and relief. I bit off more of a protein bar. It was then I took a better look at my surroundings. I turned off my headlamp because honestly, I didn't need it anymore. The cavernous room I now found myself in was brightly lit with gasoline street lamps. It was a wide open area, perhaps half the size of a football field, covered in cobblestone walkways. Sickly looking flowers of unrecognizable variations littered the sides in neatly placed planters. Hues of crimson and green and pale yellow assaulted my eyes, making me want to vomit. The air was damp and cool here, and felt somewhat pleasant. There was a tiny red brick building in the middle of the cavern, faded with age and overgrown with more of the menacing-looking plants surrounding the area. An old sign hung above the caved-in door which read, Five and Ten Cent Store, in faded whitewashed paint. If I hadn't lost my mind already, I was pretty sure it was gone then. As I gazed unblinkingly at my surroundings, I didn't move from my position for the longest time. I felt lightheaded, I could hardly move. When I finally got the strength to stand up again, I approached the five and ten cent store with my revolver drawn. I had six shots left, and I had hoped to save each one of them for whatever or whoever had trapped me here. But, the store was abandoned when I reached it. Its wooden partition was currently propped up, like it was open for business. There were several cards on the counter awaiting my inspection. One was yellow, one was blue, and one was red. They read, Blue, advance to the end, but pay a serious price. The revenge you desire will never suffice. Yellow. Advance 25 spaces and be 25 away. Your wounds will be healed, but the ear will stay. Red. Take your chance with the skeeziks and interrupt their roost. From whence you came will be where you'll lose. The least of the three evils seemed to be the yellow card. The blue card tempted me. Oh, how it tempted me. But I didn't want to admit defeat. Nor did I want to fight any goddamn crows. I'd already fended off an anthropomorphic gator that had nearly ripped me in half. So I grabbed the yellow card. The wound on my shoulder closed, and I felt immediate relief. I frantically pressed my hand to my ear and was horrified to feel nothing there. The wound had closed, sure, but... I was now missing my right ear. There wasn't even a hole there anymore. Just smooth skin. I wasn't happy. I was exhausted and broken. I wished I had never entered that tunnel to begin with. I looked around me and found that my scenery had again changed. I was in complete darkness, so I clicked on my headlamp to examine my surroundings. I was now standing on Space 75. The path was straightforward, and the spaces were spaced as evenly apart as they had been in the beginning. I began to proceed carefully forwards once more, gun in hand, ready for something to charge at me from the shadows. But nothing came. I was alone again. I wasn't sure if I should be relieved or wary. The numbers were flying below my feet, 76, 77, 78. The floor began to slant upwards, and shortly after, at 82, I found myself having to crawl on my hands and knees again. I think only sheer force of will drove me forward at this point. I reached 88 and began to sob as I saw something I never thought I would see again. Ahead of me, at 95. Was the opening I had first crawled into. I could see the light peeking in through the floorboards into the crawl space underneath my grandfather's house. No, my house. I had earned this house. I reached 100 and exited the tunnel with a triumphant shout. I was done! Miraculously, somehow, perhaps through the grace of God Himself. I had survived. Awaiting me on the dirt floor of the crawl space was a barbershop-colored walking stick. Affixed to it was one last yellow note. It read, A gift from your dearest Uncle Wiggly for surviving an ordeal most unpleasant and grisly. I never saw the tunnel again. I had the whole thing sealed up as soon as I could. Sometimes, I still have nightmares about it. But that cane sits in my study to this day, and my missing ear reminds me always of what I had to go through to get it.
0: backpacking trip to Germany is just what's needed if you're suffering from the aftermath of a bad breakup. Just you, a friend, and the friendly Canadian innkeeper who knows all the local lore. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Nixon, there's an awful lot of that lore, and some of it might have a rather direct connection to the broken-hearted man. Performing this tale with me are David Alt, Andy Cresswell, and Erica Sanderson. So you might be familiar with the legend of Lorelei Rock, but are you familiar with its connection to the legend of Zwergen Pond? Mr. Wilson, how'd you sleep? Oh, um, not bad, thanks. That doesn't sound very convincing. I sure hope the room was okay.
2: Oh, uh, um, no, no,
0: no, it, it's it's very comfortable, I just... Great! You were the first to try out the new mattress. Memory foam, you know. Everybody wants room too, with it overlooking the hills, so the bed wore out a little quicker than the other four rooms. So,
2: sleep well then? The bed was really nice, honestly. I, I just don't sleep well these days. Did the other person I checked in with come down
0: yet? Mr. Heath? Not yet. No, just you. It's quiet mind, isn't it? Not many guests this week. I think the recent rain deterred most of the other tourists. Yeah. If you don't mind me saying so, you don't look so good. Mm? Are you okay, buddy? Yes, fine, thanks. Really, though? I don't want to pry, but your eyes are raw red, and despite my comfy bedding, you don't look like you've slept at all. is it that obvious? I own it in. I see every emotion on the spectrum sat in your very chair. If it's not obvious to Joe Public, it's certainly obvious to me. I'm a mess. No, not at all. What's up? Come on, I'm essentially a therapist. Well,
2: Charlie and I, that's my friend upstairs, we came here to help me clear my head. My girl... My ex and I broke up a couple of weeks ago. Harsh, man. I'm sorry. Thanks. And I say we broke up, but she broke up with me, and, and it's been... It's been hell. Yeah, I see that. The mornings are the worst part, you know? You spend hours, and I mean literally hours, trying to drift off despite the exhaustion from the grief and the tears and the, the sheer weight of it all. You finally drift off and get four to five hours respite, and then you wake still so very tired and suddenly you can't quite remember why your chest hurts and why your eyes are sore. You think damn, what an awful dream, what an awful, awful then it hits you, you remember and the grief washes over you and you start the grieving process all over again (sighs) jeez, I'm sorry mate
0: I don't mean to unload like this no, no, it's okay don't worry about it, I'm just really sorry to hear it, I know that feeling well as a matter of fact yeah, well sure I came to Germany because of ma blonde, uh, my girlfriend. I came over, moved in with her, renounced my Canadian citizenship even, and then she left me. No dramatic reason. We just drifted apart, or so I'm told. So, here I am, literally in the hills, manning my very own inn and talking heartbreak with fine men such as yourself. I'm sorry. Oh, don't be. I love it here. (laughs) But, sorry... I hijacked the conversation. <sighs> Probably because I know nothing I can offer can help, right? It feels hopeless right now, like the heartbreak has hollowed you out and left nothing but pain. Am I right? Yeah. And so I won't delve into cliche or platitudes. All I can do is empathize, offer you a friendly face, and recommend the smoked beer. <laughs> Once the bar opens, of course. <laughs> of course. So, if she ended things, I assume you know why? And if I'm being too personal, feel free to tell me to mind my own business.
2: Well, yes. Sort of. She gave conflicting reasons. All at once? No. First one, then the other,
0: and then another. When you kept asking? Yeah. How do you know? I think we're all guilty of doing it. We're so desperate for answers, for simple problems so we can fix them, or offer to fix
2: them even. She... She made it clear I can't fix the problems, but... I just want closure. She kept dancing around different topics. I really need to know what it is for certain.
0: Are you sure? Yes. Hmm. Buddy, can I be honest? Please. She's ended it. That's as much closure as you're going to get. You can keep torturing yourself and probably her by asking questions, by looking for closure, but you're never going to get an answer. We don't always get closure. We're not owed closure. You seem like a great guy. I said as much to one of my staff when you checked in. But don't torture yourself like this. Don't let this, the way you feel right now, define you. Enjoy yourself with your buddy. Reconnect with yourself. Christ. I get what you mean, but... Ouch. That hit deep. Hmm. Told you. I'm essentially a therapist. I can solve many problems. Except for Boris Johnson and his hair. (laughs) That one is for you UK guys to figure out. Yeah, thanks. And now you're laughing.
2: (laughs) I should be charging you for this. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But, yeah, please don't. I've been trying to get my money back on a trip to... (laughs) Canada, believe it or not. I was going to surprise her with it, and yeah, I'm feeling the pinch. (laughs) Don't worry. (sighs) You hungry? No,
0: I'm really not. Oh, here's Charlie. Morning! Morning! Can I tempt you with some breakfast? I have locally sourced bread rolls, smoked ham, and salami, and I can scramble an egg to perfection. I'm also offering free therapy this morning.
3: Ah, That breakfast sounds lovely, but no thanks I've just scoffed a Kendall mint cake I really want to get out there now, clear the cobwebs Hey Charlie You all right, mate? Yeah, thanks (laughs) You fucking liar, you look like crap
2: (laughs) Sorry Well, it's true You all sorted? Got your gear? Just by the door there Well,
3: come on then Those hills won't hike themselves, you know?
0: Okay, okay. Can I at least offer you a stale pumpernickel for the road? Christ, you're really selling that option. (laughs) Well, why not? They're shit.
2: Wow, now I've got to have one. Of course you do.
0: Here, catch. Uh, oh, Oh, damn it. I'd still take it. The floor might have given it some flavor. Right you are.
2: Come on, man. Coming.
3: So, anyway, you were getting free therapy.
2: Evidently. He's a a nice guy, the landlord.
3: You're just letting that heart of yours bleed everywhere.
2: Yeah, well, he figured it out.
3: I'm joking, man. I'm glad you're talking about it, honestly.
2: Yeah, just so you don't have to hear it again. Well, there is that. (laughs) But no. Did he say anything helpful? Similar to what you've been saying, to be honest. Although he did add a bit about closure. Yeah? Yeah, he said that I'll never really get it, that it's like a shifting goalpost I'll never satisfy. Well, I'd say that's true. I haven't been much fun, have I?
3: Mate, it's fine. Stop apologising for yourself. We're here. It's uncharacteristically freezing. <laughs> We're doing something, man. Not just that own stalking her Instagram account.
2: Yeah, well, there's been no signal here. Good. Almost like I planned it.
3: But being up here is like setting your life to airplane mode. And
2: hey, look at that view. Well, it is nice.
3: Nice? Flipping gorgeous, mate. You can see Cochham from up here. Look, there's the church. Uh-huh. And there's not a soul for miles.
2: Yeah, probably because they're inside where it's warm. Oh, come on, let's just carry on. We need to keep the blood pumping before my balls freeze off. Oh, so you are planning to use them again? I'll piss off.
3: <laughs> Jesus, this wind is fierce.
2: Yeah, do you think we should head back? We've only been walking about 20 minutes. We could come back when it dies down.
3: And let you drink yourself into oblivion? No way. This is what coming here was all about. Man versus nature. (sighs) Tell you what, there's a dip coming up. Let's take the lower hills and maybe we'll be shielded. Come on. Steady now. Ah, there we go. Oh, look, a pond. Oh, yeah.
2: That's weirdly placed, just in between the hills like that and no stream.
3: Not all water in the hills forms a river, you know. Think of it as a glorified puddle.
2: Well, oh, now it's less exciting.
3: It's a pond, Julian. It was never exciting. Anyway, speaking of puddles, I've got a pee. Whoa, 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 whoa. What?
2: Yeah, you're not doing that here. Oh come on, mate! How long have we known each other? We're practically brothers. Yeah, and I'd rather not see you piss, Thank you very much. Many have. Oh, gross.
3: Prude. Back in a minute.
2: It's oddly still considering the wind. Huh? <coughs> hmm. <It's> deep. Huh? <coughs> huh? Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Who's that? Look out!
4: Hey! What the hell?
2: Sorry, 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 sorry. Oh, shit.
4: What was all that about?
2: (sighs) Poor athleticism. Completely overshot the pond, then spotted you. Uh, Look, I'm sorry, I really am.
4: It's okay, I guess. I don't see anyone else all day. I climb down here and nearly get twatted with a rock. And by another Brit, no less. (laughs)
2: To be fair, that's uh, hardly big enough to be a rock
4: And that makes a difference? Oh, uh,
2: categorising most definitely makes a difference Uh, If I threw a pebble at you, then you wouldn't have even known
4: Oh, well, if you'd actually been aiming for me, then you'd have missed, apparently
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry again, Uh, are you sure you're okay?
4: Yeah, of course You out here on your own?
2: No, my mate Charlie is off having a piss over that hill
4: I'll wait before I head that way, then.
2: You're going that way. We just came from there.
4: The nip of the good stuff?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's the inn we're booked in for a few nights.
4: No way! I'm on my way to check in now. Thought I'd hike there. That's the huge backpack.
2: (laughs) Small world.
4: No, there's just nowhere else around.
2: That's true. We came here for headspace, actually, and that's all that's on offer, really.
4: Oh, God, me too. Really, guy trouble.
2: Oh shit! Really? Me too. I mean, I, I mean, not a guy, a, a girl. girl, girl trouble. Yeah.
4: Is uh, this your clever way of telling me you're into girls? Uh,
2: n- no, I think. Look, um, no. I'm here post breakup. That's what I meant. Shit, that's a weird thing to say to a stranger. Is is that what you mean too?
4: Relax, and not quite. I'd rather not get into it.
2: Yeah, of course not.
4: Julian! That'll be your mate.
2: Yep. Julian,
3: let's keep heading west. I've just spotted a better route.
4: Aren't you going to go after him? I, I guess I am. Julian!
2: Where are you, lad? Coming! Well, if you're heading to the inn, maybe I'll see you later? And, uh. Buy you a drink, maybe?
4: Do you often ask out girls you meet alone in the hills?
2: This would be a first.
4: Me too. Accepting, I mean.
2: Wait, you've been asked out while hiking before?
4: You'd be surprised, but... Yeah. I'd be up for a drink later.
2: Great. I'll see you tonight, then. Uh, I'm Julian, by the way. I know. What?
4: Your mate's been shouting it at the top of his lungs. (laughs)
2: Oh, God, yeah. Um, What did you say your name was? I didn't. Fair enough. Julian! I'll see you later.
4: Bye, Julian.
2: Julian! Oh, there you are. Sorry. Where were you? I was talking to another hiker. Uh Aha, so she was hot, right?
3: (laughs) (laughs) You're smiling, mate. First time I've seen it in a while.
2: That's good, right? Yeah, but you know. I don't think I do. Yeah, you do. I really don't.
3: Rebounds, mate. Remember Manchester?
2: I do, and I know what you mean, don't worry. Well, it's not like you're going to see her again. Actually, she's staying at the inn. Oh, fuck. I I said I'd get her a drink tonight. Cocking hell. I thought you wanted me to get over the breakup. Yeah, healthily, naturally.
3: (sighs) Look, we've got like six hours out here, at least. More than enough time
2: for you to walk off your frustrations. Hey, it wasn't like that. She just seemed cool and she was friendly. She smiled at me. Jesus Christ, let's go.
3: This way. There's a lovely view from the hills. Should calm you down. Go on, say it. Again. Please.
0: Oh, I swear I'm going to stop telling people I'm Canadian. Alright. A boot. Oat and a boot. Maple syrup and moose. Tim Horton's there, eh? Uh, brother.
3: Wahey! Whoa, whoa. Careful. Jaws. Another Mr.
2: Barkeep. Hmm. You sure? Yep. Wait, how are you pissed after one pint? <gasps> it speaks! Very funny. Well, how are you suddenly lightweight?
3: I have no idea, (laughs) but it's excellent.
0: Well, it's five percent, but the altitude and the exercise usually catches people off guard. Altitude, that bugger.
2: Yeah, and you ate nothing but two Kendall mint cakes all day. Yeah, that'll do it. Oh, which reminds me, did you guys want to eat? Oh, yes, please. I'm ravenous. I'll be okay for now, thanks.
3: Oh!
0: Mm, everything okay? Julian has a date. Oh, great. I mean, that's a surprising development. It's just a drink.
2: Oh, just a drink.
0: Who is this mysterious individual, then?
2: Uh, a guest here, apparently. A girl's this tall brunette. Ah, pretty, then?
0: Very... Uh, You must have seen her if she's staying here. No, not yet. You were the only ones last night, and there's a few guests for tonight who haven't checked in yet.
2: Uh, Actually, there's someone smoking outside, or or vaping. Is there? Yep, definitely smoking. Yeah, I think that's her, actually. I'll just nip out.
3: Remember, Julian, be a smooth talker. (laughs) Fuck off.
4: Hey you Hey. Come looking for me, have you?
2: Uh no, no, just uh came for a cigarette actually. Um Oh <laughs> bugger must have left him in my room.
4: Mm-hmm. You can have one of mine if you like.
2: Uh, no, it's okay.
4: I insist. Here. Uh,
2: thanks. <coughs> <coughs>
4: Sorry. Oh, don't worry about it. Honestly, stop trying to impress me. Oh. Oh,
2: oh I dropped it. Sorry.
4: <coughs> I knew it was a write off when I offered it.
2: Sorry. Oh, twat. Moon's out. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's, wow, there's like zero light pollution up here.
4: Well, maybe it's my turn to impress you. Come on, take my hand. I want to show you something.
2: Oh, yeah? Where?
4: Not too far. Where we met. Come on. Here we are. The old pond.
2: Did, um, did you just take me for a hike in the dark to see a pond that we both saw earlier today in actual daylight?
4: Yeah, but you wouldn't have seen this in the daylight. Look. See?
2: Mm, what am I looking at?
4: Look at the way the moon reflects perfectly on the water. Oh, wow, yeah. Look how calm the surface is. Way up here in the hills, the wind blowing above us. And this little piece of tranquillity sits here, totally unfazed. It's calm here, isn't it? Me, you, the pond. Definitely. Were you feeling calm this morning? You looked rough. (laughs) Girl trouble, wasn't it? Yeah. What happened?
2: Um, she, uh, she ended things.
4: Oh, sorry. Why?
2: She keeps giving different answers.
4: Just not feeling it, then?
2: I suppose not.
4: So, you must have a lot of soul-searching to do. Yeah. Grieving. Yep. And yet, you asked out the first girl who smiled at you.
2: Hey, whoa, 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 whoa not at all.
4: Well, it's true, isn't it? Rebound much? Uh,
2: uh, no, no, that's not fair.
4: <laughs> it's all right. Sorry, I'm only pulling your leg.
2: Oh, good. I was about to say you were quite forward yourself.
4: Uh Aha. So, how are you feeling now? With me?
2: Great, thanks. Relaxed.
4: Good. I want you to kiss me. What? You heard me.
2: Well, come here then.
4: Nah, you come here.
2: Okay, sure.
4: Closer. (laughs) Are you a good kisser, Julian?
2: I've never had any complaints.
4: Mmm, good. I like boys who are good kissers.
2: This water's cold.
4: No, no. Eyes up. Don't think about it. Look at me. There we go. That's good. Keep looking at me. Do you know what I do to boys who are good kissers, Julian?
2: I'd love to find out.
4: (laughs) I bet you would. You men are all the fucking same! Wait, what?
3: Where the hell is he?
0: Longest smoke I've ever known.
3: Think he's gone for a walk? Seeing the
0: sights. Hmm, It's a little cold for that. And there's no sights you'll see better at night than you did during the day.
3: The view really is bloody lovely. Oh, we did see a lovely pond. No fishies, though. Not that I could see, anyway.
0: Oh, that'll be Zwergen Pond. Yeah, I'd avoid that if I can.
3: How come?
0: That's too morbid. A pond? Well, sure. You haven't heard the legend of the Lorelei?
3: I mean, yeah. The siren who sits on the rock and lures men to their deaths. Ooh. <laughs> oh, but, but that's along the Rhine, isn't it? Literally, the rock is called Lorelei.
0: Well, sure, yeah. And the legend supposedly came about from novels and poems. But I bet you haven't heard all the legends of the Lorelei Rock. One in particular that relates to this pond. Almost nobody knows about it unless they're from the area. I'm lucky, as an outsider, to even be told about it. And maybe I shouldn't even tell you. Oh, go on. Regale me. Okay. So, an old, old legend claimed that a clan of dwarves lived inside caves in the rock. Lorelei emits a hum. Did you know that?
3: Well, I heard something about it.
0: So, the lesser known legend is that the dwarves were digging tunnels deep under the earth, connecting the waters that flow into Lorelei through various openings that were to serve as pathways for the dwarves to sneak out of their caves and into the country. Rumor has it they built one tunnel
3: Which, let me guess, opened up into Zwergin Pond
0: Yep, and the tunnel wasn't supposed to be flooded But then the legend of the maiden Lorelei comes into it The Siren It said she flooded the tunnels, drowning all the dwarves And the hum emitted by the rock is the ghost of the dwarves Still working in the flooded tunnels But, and here's the local part Legend has it that the siren, mermaid, whatever she is, uses the tunnel to sometimes appear in Zwergen Pond. And since there have been no sightings of her at Lorelei Rock in many years, people around here think she decided to stay at our little pond, lurking around the pond, waiting to lure men into their watery graves. And they say, as they always do in these sorts of tales, that she remains there still. A beautiful spirit... (laughs) Or mermaid, if you prefer. Waiting to lure men into her watery grave.
3: (laughs) What? For company?
0: No, no, for revenge, buddy. She was betrayed by her lover and threw herself off Lorelei Rock. And I guess locals around here, they wanted their own version of the legend. So the dwarves dug a tunnel, and the tunnel created organ Pond, and BAM! We're the new home, or maybe the vacation spot, of Germany's favorite killer mermaid.
3: Jesus Christ.
0: <laughs> Don't worry, it's just a legend. Nobody's drowned in that pond for years. Not since I've lived here, anyway. <laughs> it's all nonsense, I'm sure.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Well, Julian will be all right.
0: Once he gets back, that is. Oh, of course he will. Let's hope he feels better soon, eh? Many people are skeptical of séances and psychics, and sometimes they're right to be, judging by the behavior of a woman's father in this story, and to her frustration, her sister's happy to be in on the scam. But in this tale, shared with us by author Emma Catherine, we learn that just because something supernatural starts off as fake, it doesn't always stay that way. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson and David Alt. So, by all means, try to learn the tricks of the trade, and work out how some of it is done, but still beware of Bells.
4: My father is a liar and deceiver. I know this to be true. The rest of the world does not. This is why our parlour is filled with onlookers, journalists, and the town mayor. They sit in the near dark, gasping and staring, slack-jawed as my father fools them all. They sit around a large round table, holding hands and crying as my father lies to them, and tells them that their loved ones are speaking to him. An old woman cries as he spouts more nonsense and makes vague proclamations which she agrees to immediately.
2: Your son died in the war.
4: Half of the young men in our town died in the war.
2: Your mother struggled to breathe at the end.
4: An epidemic of the consumption passed through our town not two years ago.
2: Your wife is so relieved that you chose to remarry.
4: That's a popular one with the widowers. My father claims to have the power of mesmerism or clairvoyance. He hasn't really decided for sure yet and it varies depending on who is asking him. He read a news story about two sisters who held séances which filled their homes with the sounds of rapping and taps and creaks and brought them great wealth and fame. My father decided that this was a splendid idea and now he is known in this town and for as far as the local papers' stories managed to travel. He has roped my youngest sister into this charade. At first, she was simply better at creating atmosphere than he was. She would prepare the room, lighting candles, closing the curtains just enough to let a light breeze in, but not enough to let in the light, and dressing the table with suspicious-looking items and decorations. She's clever, my sister. Not clever enough to say no to my father, though. My mother never gets involved in any of this. She stays away during his seances, preparing tea in the kitchen, or taking her sewing up to her bedroom. I can't avoid it though. My father thought it would look good to have both of his daughters involved. After the story of the two psychic sisters, he wanted people to think of them when they saw our family. But I don't sit at the table and tell lies with them. Instead, I sit in a chair in the corner of the room, lighting candles when asked, or getting visitors cups of tea or glasses of whiskey to calm their nerves. The seances were nonsense at first, barefaced lies and stories. But then the real trickery began. I don't know whose idea it was, my father's or my sister's, but one of them decided to replicate the knocks heard by the psychic sisters they'd read about. So while my father is speaking with the spirits, my sister creates the knocks, either tapping on the underside of the table or hitting the leg of her chair with her boot. The dark room and the delicate lace tablecloth filled with appropriately placed holes to slip a hand through, covers most of this. And then my sister came up with the greatest idea of all. She fitted a small bell to the underside of the table and attached a length of string running around the table so that she can pull on it gently and create a gentle ringing, which no one can ever see due to her cleverness. It went down a storm. My father became even more famous. They decided to stop drawing attention to my sister so that she could work the apparatus without detection. It's despicable. More problematic still, it makes my own condition worse. For you see, there is a real mesmer in our family, and it's me, but I didn't realize it until my sister started with those godforsaken bells. They sit around a large round table, holding hands and crying as my father lies to them and tells them that their loved ones are speaking to him. My father raises his eyes to the ceiling and asks the spirit to come forth, to give him a sign that they are there. The first bell goes, and a figure flickers into life behind my father. He is a teenage boy, and appears as if he has been coated in pale blue dust. Something drifts off him from time to time, and he flickers all the while. I cannot stop staring. His mouth opens to speak, but he can't. There is a woman at the table he wants to speak to. He is mouthing her name.
2: Your son is here, Mrs. Bishop.
4: My father speaks the truth without even knowing he is doing so.
2: And he wants to tell you that he is at peace.
4: The lad screams a wordless scream and tries to punch at a wall I cannot see. He desperately wants this woman's attention. It looks as though he's mouthing the word, mother. The woman looks relieved as she and my father nod and smile and tell a story about when the boy was young. She tells most of the story and my father adds obvious details. He always did love your cooking or he loved playing in the street with his friends. My sister rings that bell and he is gone. Again, my father pretends to be in some kind of trance and begs the spirits to come to him and share their table. A man appears. This one is covered in red dust. It leeches off of him and covers the floor where he stands. I don't like this man. The dust is thickest around his neck. My father is none the wiser and speaks to an elderly gentleman about his wife. There is no wife here, just the red man. The red man approaches a young woman at the table. She has tears in her eyes and is smiling at the elderly gentleman who looks as though he is overjoyed with my father's lies. Trailing crimson, the red man walks right up to her. Slowly, he tries to wrap his fingers around her neck, but he keeps passing through her skin. Red dust cakes her dress. As if bothered by something, she coughs lightly and adjusts the neckline of her bodice, pulling it up further as if to shield her from the cold. The red man lets go and looks frustrated. He lifts his dead eyes and surveys the room. In the corner, he finds me. Leaving scarlet footprints, he crosses the room to find me. He knows I can see him. Oh God, he knows I can see him. The bell rings and he vanishes. I hear nothing of my father's words as I watch the breeze that comes from the open shutters blow away any evidence of the cadaver. My heart pounds and I grip my chair tightly. Oh no, not another. This one is a woman my mother's age. Her color is yellow. The dust pours out of her mouth like molasses. It pools on the floor at her feet. She stands behind my father, but stares at the man next to my sister. He has a young woman at his side who is blushing and early with child.
2: Of course, Mr. Hawley, your wife is so pleased that you chose to remarry and that you have this beautiful young wife to mother her children.
4: I can see the dust has filled what was once the whites of the woman's eyes. There is also a thin trail of it trickling from one of her ears. She opens her mouth to speak, but nothing comes out but a steady stream of pus. My stomach churns, and I want to vomit with her. As I think this, she lifts her head to me and presses a hand to her own stomach. Something in me sparks with a sharp pain. I wince, just as my sister pulls that bloody bell for the final time of the evening. I am ordered to light more candles. And shaking, I do as I'm told. Chatter fills the room, and my father presses palms with his guests and their wallets. One of the visitors was a journalist. They ask to return tomorrow, to take a photograph for their paper. I have never had my photograph taken, and do not wish my first time to be for this. I leave my father and my sister to their adoring public, and adjourn to the kitchen to serve tea for the more shaken of the attendees. As I walk in, I catch my mother's eyes. She looks as though she's been crying. I sit at the table and she joins me. We share a look and I know that she understands. A hand slides over mine and she gives me a look that begs for forgiveness. I now know why my mother does not attend the seances. She holds me and I cry into her bodice like I did as a child. My father may be a liar, But my mother has seen the truth.
0: Wild West, a time of lawlessness and debauchery. Here we join two travelers, Frank and Gus, who after some time on the trail are desperate for a bit of female company and maybe a bed for the night, too. But in this tale, shared with us by author Sean Yates, our duo find the town deserted, or so it seems, until they enter the church. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Atticus Jackson, Jeff Clement, and Addison Peacock. So don't get too close to the sick folk in the house of the Lord, because whatever they have might be catching. And if you stick around, you might discover that death rides a horse.
5: was a time not too long ago being out on the plains without an army was suicide time's a bit different now huh (sighs) it got different in a hurry out here you can see him coming got plenty of room to get away as long as you got a good horse still wouldn't mind having an army but the inbeckers can't be picky heaven help you The day the bullets run out. I remember riding into Cimarron the day things went to hell. Me and Gus had recently come into a bit of money and we'd figure we'd treat ourselves to some of the famed Cimarron girls. (laughs) Couldn't pass through a mining camp without hearing a handful of things they'd do for the right price. And you could always count on Cimarron girls to have all their teeth. It's a damn shame the brothel was the first place to close. A damn crying shame. Anyway, we ride into town dust-covered, tired and sore from the saddle. A thunderstorm chased us the whole ride and all we wanted was a drink. Something stiff to knock off the miles. And we ride up to the saloon and what do we find but the place boarded up? A sign been nailed to the door, but neither me nor Gus could read, so it didn't much matter. The boarded-up door sent a clear enough message that we didn't need no fancy words anyway. Pretty quiet, don't you think? Gus removed his hat and wiped the sweat from his forehead. He wasn't wrong. I took a moment to take in our surroundings and there wasn't a soul around. Most of the nearby buildings were boarded up like the saloon. Well now that you mention it, yeah, it is. We spent a couple minutes in silence, trying to decide what to do when the storm prodded us to move. Thunder cracked, and rain came down like pouring piss out of a boot. Finding shelter became our new priority. None too happy about our current situation, we headed to the church. Figured it was the best place to go since churches don't ever close and it'd be mighty unchristian of them to turn us out, even looking the way we did. All we wanted was to escape a storm. Turned out, we'd have been better off staying out in the wet. <sighs> Guess that's what you call ironic. We go inside, and there's folks laying all over the place, moaning and coughing and crying. Now, the couple folks that were tending to them looked up at me and Gus like we were the devil come to carry them away. One had to have been the preacher because he carried a small wooden cross in one hand and a Bible in the other. He comes up to us, clutching the good book to his chest.
3: I'm sorry, but if you value your health and your lives, you really should leave. An affliction has struck this town, and you're certain to catch it if you remain here.
5: He was a small guy, and he looked so worn down, like he might collapse any second. Dark bags rimmed his sunken eyes, and his skin had lost most of its color. The conviction in his quivering voice was unsettling, I admit, but I didn't much want to go back out into the storm. I sure as hell wasn't going to ride back where I came from. And I told him so. In case you hadn't noticed, it's raining like the second coming of Noah out there. You're crazy if you think we're just going to turn around and... A man laying nearby screamed before coughing and convulsing uncontrollably. The preacher rushed to him, uttering soft and soothing prayers.
1: Frank, let's get on out of here. It can't be any worse out there than it is in here.
5: He grabbed my arm and gave it a tug to try and get me to follow him. Instead, I stood there watching as the preacher did his best to keep the man from bashing his head into the hardwood floor. Without turning to look at me, the preacher sent us on our way.
3: The town is all but empty now. Stay anywhere you like but here, and get out first thing in the morning for your own sakes.
5: Gus and I left the church, leading our horses down the muddy road. Don't you think it was funny the
1: preacher had a pistol tucked in his belt?
5: I shook my head and told him I hadn't noticed. Gus always did have a keen eye for detail.
1: There's not one thing right about this place, Frank, and you know it. Let's at least get a couple miles out of town and find a spot to camp. The rain's already letting up.
5: I took off my hat and smacked him with it. All things considered, I was in a bad mood, and I was at least going to sleep in a bed before we rode out. And since we had free run of the place, I made sure we shacked up in a nice little house with a couple of high-dollar goose-down mattresses. Second place to a drink in the company of a fine woman, of course, but a close second. I brightened up once I got a fire going and my clothes started to dry. The rain had stopped like Gus predicted, and... He took the better weather as a chance to run to the outhouse. He'd been gone maybe fifteen minutes or so, and I hadn't really paid it any mind until something thumped the side of the house hard enough to rattle the walls. Startled a bit, I grabbed my pistol and ran outside. Next to the house, Gus struggled against a man with his arms around Gus's neck like he was trying to strangle him. I raised my pistol to shoot the bastard. But then I saw the sheriff's badge. Now, I'm no saint, but I wasn't about to shoot a lawman. They'll hang you for that. Gus saw me, and his eyes widened. Shoot him! I am not about to hang for you. I don't even know what you did. Still, Gus was my best friend, and I couldn't just let him get whooped like that. So I ran over and smashed my pistol into the back of the sheriff's skull. He staggered but didn't fall. He did, however, let go of Gus. And free from the choke, Gus spun and caught him under the chin with his fist. I heard the man's jaw crunch, and I knew it was broken. The sheriff didn't seem to notice. He showed no sign of pain, and he didn't reach for his gun either. Instead, he lumbered towards me. That's when I noticed how pale he was, and those eyes... They were that milky white color like when somebody's been dead for a while Well, I was spooked now cuz here's this sheriff with corpse eyes and a broken jaw and he's swiping at me like some kind of crazed cat I guess I lost my nerve a bit cuz without thinking I shot him Some bitch dropped like a stone from the sky and got right back up I'll admit I screamed a bit at that screamed and fired my remaining five bullets. The last one hit him in the head, and he stayed down for good after that. I was shaking as I reloaded my pistol.
1: What in the hell kind of man takes six shots to kill? I knew we should have left. I knew it and I told you so.
5: I told him to shut up. About that time, the preacher comes running around the side of the house, cross-tucked into his belt and a double barrel in his hands. He looked at us, and then at the body. Those that could, left. Those that couldn't, well, now you know.
6: God be with you.
5: I called to him as he walked away, but he wouldn't answer. He just trudged off like a whipped dog. Gus pointed out that the sun was going down and that we should get back inside. After what we'd just seen, I didn't need to be told twice. And we went in and barricaded the windows and doors with anything and everything we could. Just to be extra safe, we decided only one of us should sleep at a time. So much for enjoying those fine down mattresses. Around two in the morning, it started. A commotion came from the church that sent shivers up and down my spine. And there were screams and shrieks like I'd never heard before. Gunshots, too. I didn't need to wake up Gus, it was so bad. I said we should get the horses and went to clear the door when something started knocking and crying on the other side. I finished moving the stuff and nodded at Gus. He stood opposite the door, ready to shoot as soon as it opened. No sooner had I moved out of the way when the door burst open and a woman tumbled in. She was wearing a plain blue dress and was carrying the preacher's double barrel. Me and Gus couldn't help but stare, and it was only with her prompting that I closed the door and locked it up again. And we sat in total silence for several minutes. And out of nowhere, she speaks up.
6: My name is Rose.
5: Me and Gus introduced ourselves, and she told us what had happened at the church.
6: It happened so fast. Four of them just sat up all at once. Reverend Rivers was kneeling beside Doc Turner. He couldn't get up. He didn't have time. Two missed shots with his pistol was all he got off before the first one grabbed him. The others were on him a moment later. They tore him to shreds, and I ran. Grabbed his shotgun and ran."
5: (laughs) She broke down and began crying. Between sobs, she continued her story about how people had started getting sick weeks before and about how it always ended with the sick turning into crazed cannibals.
6: Reverend Rivers insisted on staying and tending to the suffering. He'd ease their pain during their remaining time. And when the sickness finally won, he'd put a bullet between their eyes with a prayer. My sister Lily and I stayed behind too. We wanted to help the preacher do God's work. It was only a couple of days before Lily fell ill. I wonder now if she knew. And that's why she stayed. She killed herself in the night, rather than linger till the sickness took her.
1: That's awful. I'm so sorry for your loss, Miss Rose.
5: I gripped my pistol tighter. The weight and the sturdiness felt reassuring. My heart broke for her. Truly, it did, but sympathies weren't going to save us. Well... Unless you're one to end up the same way, Uh, I think it's past time we get out of here." A thump at the door and a loud moan reminded me it was gonna be easier said than done. Rose moved to Gus's side and, again, I opened the door. Soon as it was open, Rose's shotgun thundered and there was an explosion of blood and bones and brains. What had been the preacher fell to the floor. And Before I could even begin to clean the mess off me, Rose was leading the way out the door.
6: Come on. To the general store for bullets. Then we get out of town.
5: I didn't like the idea of staying around longer than we had to at this point. But more bullets sounded like they could be useful. Along the way, we ran into two more former people. As soon as they saw us, they ran straight at us. And I say ran, but it was more like how babies are when they first learn how to walk. They didn't get close before we popped them. And once in the store, I emptied some sacks of flour and loaded the bags with as much ammo as I could. And while we were at it, Rose grabbed herself a pistol. Gus and I grabbed ourselves a couple of repeating rifles like they use in the army now. It wasn't like anyone in town was going to miss them. Loaded and ready, it was time to go. I followed Rose out the door and Gus came behind me. And just as I cleared the porch, I heard a thud and a shout. I turned and there was Gus on the ground with one of the afflicted on his back. It was smashing his face into the ground and Gus was helpless as a turtle on its back. And I fired two shots with my pistol, killing it. Gus groaned and picked himself up off the ground just as Rose gave a holler. Three more bastards were in coming. Gus, always a bit on the husky side, jogged along behind me. She was almost to the horses when the three had shown up. Now they blocked the way. I shot as I walked towards them, emptied my pistol, but I got him. I helped Rose onto my horse while Gus got up onto his. Five more sick bastards showed up while I tried to mount up. In the rush to get out of there, my foot caught in the stirrup and couldn't swing myself over the horse's back. Gus and Rose laid down cover fire and even managed to down a couple. The relief was short-lived, though, because they also spooked the horses. I fought to keep the animal from stomping me to death while still trying to free my foot. Precious moments slipped past like a century. I heard both Gus and Rose dry fire and change weapons at least once. Precious moments slipped past like a century
1: i'm out and we got more coming we go now or we're dead
5: running on pure panic i heard a sickening crunch as i somehow got myself up into the saddle i looked at gus and saw him using his rifle as a club he had just crushed a skull swinging the horses around we charged off hard I'd like to say we got away without a scratch, but I'd be lying. Now, I guess after Gus started using his gun as a club, one of the things managed to bite his leg or something. His horse, too. And we rode for about an hour before Gus fell out of his saddle, and his horse just laid down a few steps away from him.
6: It's happening. It always happens so fast when you get attacked by the sick.
5: I dismounted. And went to him he was breathing real heavy and his eyes were turning that cloudy white color i'll admit i was fighting back tears gus was my best friend and i know he was laying there like that because of me he rolled his head to face me as i knelt beside him but i could tell he didn't know me from adam i took a deep breath my hands shook Like a newborn calf taking its first steps. But I did it. I drew my pistol, I put the barrel to Gus's forehead, and I pulled the trigger. I have a hard time remembering much after that. I know I felt numb all over, and I must have sat there for several minutes. Probably would have sat there longer if it hadn't been for Gus's horse. The beast staggered to its feet and began neighing the most pathetic sounds I've ever heard from an animal. Globs of drool poured from its gnashing mouth, and it stumbled around almost drunkenly. In my state of grief, I didn't move, ready to let the animal end me right there. Rose had other plans... She rode over on my horse and blasted the beast's brains out with a double-barrel. I guess she told me to get up because the memory that's clearest to me after shooting Gus is of us riding across the plains toward Harlan. And what we found in that town wasn't any better than what we left. Sick folk everywhere and people fleeing for their lives. We didn't even stop. The two of us traveled for a few weeks like that. We'd make for a new town only to get there and find it falling apart. We only ever stayed long enough to get supplies, and then we'd get out of there. And for a while, the planes were safe enough. It didn't seem like the sick had much reason to wander too far from town. But before long, we started seeing them even out here. And not just city folk, neither. The Indians got it, too. If I'm honest, though, I prefer the sick ones. They can still kill you, but at least they're a whole lot slower, and they don't use weapons. It wasn't easy living like that, but we did all right, me and Rose. And We got along well enough, and if the world was ending, it was nice to have some company. After maybe a little more than a month, I started getting pretty clear that Rose had caught whatever you want to call it. I don't know how... It probably just a matter of time. We couldn't travel more than a few hours before she'd lose all her energy, and and she coughed a lot. It didn't take a doctor to know she wasn't going to last much longer. So, when she asked me to do her a favor, I assumed she was going to ask me to put her out of her misery. You can bet my surprise when she asked me to lay with her.
6: I've been a God-fearing woman. I've tried to do right, but it's a cruel fate that I never married or had the pleasure of knowing a man. I do not wish to die that way. And any God that can allow such horror to roam all over his creation has no call to judge me a sinner.
5: That seemed reasonable logic to me, and who was I to deny a dying woman's request? Though to be honest, it pained me a little to do it. I had really started to fall for her and acknowledging that she'd soon be gone stung something fierce. Well, at night, we determined to fulfill her request. We'd been hanging on to some fancy fridge wine from one of our foraging runs and decided this was the right time to open it. She really was something. Her breasts weren't terribly large, but they were firm and her thighs had some meat to them. And when she saw me admiring her, she became kind of shy and tried to cover herself. I whispered gently to her and we wrapped around each other and kissed. I took things slow as to make her feel as comfortable as possible, especially with her coughing so hard every few minutes. In all honesty, it was better than any whore I'd ever been with. As I entered her, I knew I was in love, and I began to cry. She moaned quietly and reached for my face to wipe the tears from my eyes. And through my blurred vision, I saw her hand stop, and I felt her body convulse. The sound of her moan changed, and it was no longer Of quiet enjoyment. In the firelight, I could see her face. And I knew. I flew off her in a panic. Snarling, she rolled over and scrambled after me. And without thinking, I reached for my pistol and felt bare skin. I felt bile rise as I realized my mistake. My clothes and gun were by the fire, but I'd have to get around Rose first, and there was no chance of that happening. She was on me before I could even get to my feet. I caught her incoming hands as she clawed at my face and pushed her back while she tried to bite me. And looking around as best as I could from the ground, I saw a rock nearby. It wasn't much, but I knew what I had to do, being bigger than her. I didn't have much trouble gripping both of her hands in one of mine. Credit where it's due, though, she was stronger than I expected. And with my free hand, I grabbed the rock and swung it around as hard as I could. The sound and the feeling of it crashing into her skull. It almost makes me sick even thinking about it now. Three times. I bashed that rock into the side of her head. Three times. She fell off the side of me after the third and moved no more. And I laid there, sweating and crying and shaking. I don't think I slept that night. It's been two, maybe three weeks since I buried her. Since then, I've kept to myself. I figure it's for the best can't get attached to anyone this way. You're the first healthy-looking folks I've seen since Rose, to be honest. Not that it should matter too much longer, I reckon. (coughs) I've been feeling awfully tired, and I can't seem to shake this cough. (laughs) In fact, stranger, if... If you could do me one last favor, I'd be much obliged.
0: In our final tale, a kid named Tommy spends his vacation with his cousins at their shared lake house. His older cousin, Ben, tells him a gruesome story of how another lakeside resident, Mr. Peterson, was in a freak boating accident. But in this tale, shared with us by author Josh Moody, it's not the fate of Mr. Peterson that has him worried, it's what became of his canine companion because years before, Tommy had a bad experience with the mutt that's haunted him ever since. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, Kyle Akers, Jessica McAvoy, and Dan zapula So, as tragic as it was, at least they recovered Mr. Peterson's remains. But Tommy still can't rest easy, because they never found the dog.
7: I was 12 when I heard about the accident.
8: Broke every bone in his goddamn body, Tommy.
7: My cousin, Ben, and I sat in Adirondack chairs on the back porch of our family shared lakehouse, sipping cream sodas and looking out upon the shiny expanse of water and wilderness that rolled off toward the horizon. It was a little afternoon, and the sun stood tall in the late August sky its beams glinting off the wakes and ripples that spread across the lakes in flashes of white that felt like they could blind you if you didn't squint. It looked hot out on the lake, but the house was surrounded by a copse of old pines that spread their feathered limbs above our heads, guarding our porch from the cruelty of the midday sun. The house itself was a little more than a glorified cabin, what we Mainers call a camp, but it had four small bedrooms and could accommodate both families snugly, not comfortably. This particular weekend, my mother had stayed behind with my sick little sister, and my dad and I had picked up my cousins in Portland on the way north, so it was just the four of us. Only I had to share a room, but my dog, Belle, rarely hogged the covers. Nuh-uh, he would have hit the water. Water can't break bones. I hope that would end the story where it started. We had big plans to go tubing after lunch and I wasn't too keen on hearing all the ways the water could murder me.
8: Can't if you're going fast enough. Turns hard as concrete, my dad says. Ben leaned in for emphasis. And Mr. Peterson was going fast, Tommy. Dad says he had to have been going almost 100 miles per hour, maybe more. One of them cigarette boats. Had his dog in there with him too, dumb bastard.
7: He leaned back and sipped his soda clearly enjoying the look of strained wonder on my face. Ben was four years older than me, big for his age, and he was allowed to drive the boat. His words carried the weight of a much older, much cooler kid. And heck, he was almost a grown-up. Well, what happened? How'd he crash? I didn't really want to hear the answer, but wanted to seem scared even less. Ben grinned.
8: Man, you love this stuff, huh? Well, listen, those boats are made to go fast. They cut through the water like a hot knife through fucking mayonnaise. It was early, I guess, and maybe he thought it was clear enough to see how fast he could rip, you know? But he must have hit something, a log, or just a wake bigger than he expected, and he went nose up.
7: He used his hand to demonstrate the boat flipping into an upright position.
8: Probably caught a gust of wind, too, because the people who saw it happen said the boat was flipping over itself like a quarter. And then Mr. Peterson and his dog launched like they got shot out of a goddamn howitzer.
7: I glanced down at Belle, who basked on her side at my feet in a patch of sunlight, snoring. Did they die? And I already knew the answer. Ben ignored my stupid question while we paused to watch a wakeboarder skim across the lake behind a small bow rider. When both had disappeared out of sight behind a thicket of trees, he turned back to me and
8: continued... Well, the guy went cartwheeling along the lake like one of them gymnasts from the Olympics, bones smashing every time he touched the water. I heard from Billy down at the filling station that when they pulled him out, it felt like they were lifting up a wet sack full of rocks.
7: Ben leaned in again, smiling. He'd been saving his favorite part for last.
8: The dog, though? Well, they never found the dog
7: ben leaned back into his chair once more satisfied they never found the dog i didn't say it to ben but i knew that boat and i knew that dog i'd met him the summer before a couple miles down the dirt road that surrounded the lake i was with ben's little sister jamie jamie was my age And when we got bored after a few days of swimming and tubing, we liked to walk along the road and look for treasures. People left all kinds of great stuff by the side of country roads. Like old bottles, loose wires, spent shotgun shells. Heck, one time I even found a rusty meat cleaver. This particular day, we hadn't been too lucky. We'd found a pretty good chunk of pyrite, which feels like a shiny hunk of gold when you're a kid even if it's just a worthless imitation, and we were sidestepping on opposite sides of the road, tossing it back and forth to see how many times we could pass it before it tumbled into the dust. We were up to 57 when Jamie suddenly stopped, letting the rock fall into the dirt beside her. Hey, the fool's gold. What gives? We almost beat the record.
6: We already have the record, dummy.
7: She picked up a bit of her older brother's jerkiness over the years usually, she was pretty nice. I ran over to collect our fallen prize.
8: Besides, check that out.
7: She pointed across the street. A long, sleek motorboat sat on a trailer in the driveway. The twin motors jutting out the back were each almost as big as me, and their jagged propellers looked more than capable of sending the boat skimming across the water like a bullet, or turning a kid into a slushie if he got too close. Holy crap. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen.
6: Sure is. Way to go.
7: Jamie looked at the mailbox in front of the house.
6: Mr. Peterson.
7: She crossed the street and started toward the boat. I followed her. She reached up and touched one of the shiny metal blades of the left propeller. It looked like a broadsword next to her little hand. Be careful, Jamie. That thing could tear you apart as if the motor might roar to life if it heard me. Jamie turned toward me and laughed.
6: <laughs> it's not on, Tommy. Stopping such a baby.
7: She laughed again, <laughs> louder. And that's when I saw the dog. It came tearing around the far side of the house, snarling. It was a huge Irish wolfhound, almost twice the size of Jamie, and it was charging straight for her. I opened my mouth to shout a warning, but all that came out was a small gust of air. I was paralyzed with terror. The dog announced itself instead, letting out a deep, guttural bellow as it dashed across the front walkway. Jamie turned and froze, mouth still hanging open in the shape of her last guffaw. The dog leapt in the air, jaws wide, its long yellow teeth dripping with saliva. Jamie finally shrieked and threw her arms up in front of her face. And then, suddenly, a mere foot from Jamie, the dog stopped. It let out a sickening, strangled yelp as its legs and body continued to fly forward, flipping the dog in midair until it crumbled to the ground in a heap. In our panic, neither of us had seen the rope tied between the front porch and the dog's neck, and the dog had clearly forgotten about it as well. As it struggled to stand, whimpering, Jamie sprinted back into the road. Come
6: on! Come on!
7: She ran past me, but I didn't move. I stared at the dog. It had managed to lift itself into a sitting position, but its legs were shaking and its breath came in thin, rattling gasps. Jamie slowed to a stop a few yards down the road. Tommy, what are you doing? Let's go! I was sobbing. Tears streamed down my cheeks and my legs shook almost as badly as the dog's. I was scared and I was angry. I hated that dog. I hated it for frightening me, for trying to hurt my cousin, and for making me into a coward. But I think I hated myself even more. I'd done nothing. I hadn't even been able to scream. I mean, if it weren't for a few yards of rope, I would have watched my cousin get torn to shreds beneath the propeller I'd been so irrationally afraid of just a moment before. I clenched my fist and felt something hard in my right hand. I looked down at the hunk of pyrite, then back at the broken dog. I screamed, lifted the pyrite over my head, and threw it as hard as I could. The noise startled the dog and it turned its head toward me, just enough to catch the pyrite directly between the eyes. It cried in pain and then collapsed. We ran home, not looking back. We never told anyone about the dog, and we were sure we'd killed it. Also, we were pretty certain we'd been trespassing, and we weren't so sure if touching Mr. Peterson's boat was a crime, but we'd done that too. We didn't know the punishment for killing a dog with a rock, but we figured juvie at least, and we were damned if either of us was willing to risk it. Little did we know that dog had about a year left to go before it bit the big one. Even littler did we know that it would die at the hands of the coolest boat we'd ever seen.
8: Still stoked to go tubing later, Tommy boy?
7: I imagined the enormous half-rotted wolfhound floating just below the surface of the murky water. Dead eyes watchful, just waiting to sink its teeth into the feet of kids who fell off their tubes. Especially kids who threw rocks. I most certainly was not stoked. But I wasn't about to tell Ben that. Uh, Of course. I walked back into the kitchen to get my lunch. But uh, if you're too scared to drive the boat, I mean, I won't judge. Ben threw his head back and cackled.
8: (laughs) Right on, little cuz.
7: Ben chuckled, putting his feet up on the railing.
8: (laughs) Right the fuck on. The first
7: couple spins around the lake that day were great, and my dad manned the helm and Jamie and I were dragged along behind the boat on dueling tubes at the end of 20-foot ropes. Ben sat at the back of the boat, watching to see if we wanted to go faster or slower, or more importantly, if we fell off the tubes and needed a pickup. Dad was being gentle, and he'd whip us around a corner every now and then, but he never went too fast or launched us off of wakes or slammed our tubes together. We both mercifully stayed on the tubes the whole run, I almost forgot what I'd been so scared about. At the end of the second loop, Dad slowed the boat and let us float to a stop. We were still about 15 feet behind the boat, so I couldn't hear what was being said over the muttering of the idle motor, but I could tell from Ben's body language that he was asking my dad for something. And after a minute or so of light begging, Ben apparently got his wish. My dad went to the helm to collect his sunglasses, then turned to Jamie and me and snuck a grin. Hang on, Jamie.
8: Why? What's up? She'd
7: been staring at the far end of the lake, watching a water skier practice his aerials. She turned back toward the boat and saw Ben settling in behind the wheel.
6: Oh shit. We're dead.
7: My dad waved to us from the stern and we waved back. Freddy Freddy. Normally, Ben taking the wheel was scary, but also exciting. He gave us all we could handle, but that was the fun of it, laughing and screaming through your fear as you struggled to stay on top of the tube. I mean, you never wanted to fall, but you wanted to know that you could at any moment. Today was different. Today, the water looked darker than usual, more ominous, like an enormous black maw just waiting to swallow a kid up. glanced over at Jamie. She had a grimace on her face, but her eyes were smiling. Either Ben hadn't told her about the accident, or she just didn't care. Jamie wasn't one to waste time on imagining monsters. I, however, couldn't remove the image of the rotting dog from my head. And as the boat's engine roared to life, I closed my eyes and prayed for an easy run. My prayers went unheard or simply unanswered. Ben went right to work, gunning the boat hard into the turns, sending Jamie and me whipping over the boat's wake, launching us two or three feet into the air before we slammed back down onto the surface of the lake. At the end of the turns, he'd spin the wheel in the other direction, causing our tubes to slam into one another, water splashing, legs flailing. Jamie was screaming and laughing at the same time. I was silent, focusing all my energy on staying on the tube and out of the water below. After about ten minutes of being whipped around like clothes in a washing machine, my arms were so tired I could hardly feel them. My hands were barely able to grip the straps, and I'd slid down the tube so that my feet were skimming along the top of the water. Knowing I couldn't handle much more, I glanced up at the boat just in time to see my dad shout to get Ben's attention, then swing his arm around his head. (sighs) Wrap it up. Head back to port. I never felt so relieved. Ben nodded to my dad. Then turned to Jamie and me and made the same swinging motion. We nodded as well, then continued to stare backward for a moment longer. Though I couldn't make out his face from so far behind the boat, I didn't really need to. He was smiling. He was smiling at Jamie and me.
6: You know we're screwed, right?
7: I didn't have time to respond. Ben turned hard left, as hard as he could without putting the boat in danger of capsizing, back toward our cabin. The turn was so tight that Jamie and I hardly moved, just slowly drifted out wide to the left of the boat, exactly where he wanted us. God damn it. Ben slammed the pedal to the hull of the boat. The engine roared and we immediately lurched forward. We'd pulled ourselves up to the front of the tubes, but the force of that initial jolt knocked us both back to the bottom. Our legs skidding along the water, barely hanging on with our fingertips. We bounced along to the left of the boat as Ben picked up speed, and as a result, the wake behind the boat grew. We both knew what Ben was planning, but that didn't make us any more able to stop it. And when the wake reached a height where we couldn't see over the other side, he made his move. Ben turned hard to the left once more, sending Jamie and me swinging towards the wake. Jamie's tube was tied on the right, so she hit it first, popping into the air like a fish jumping out of the water. She hung on to the tube despite the launch. I was right behind her, and with just a little more distance to travel, my tube had picked up more speed. I blasted off the wake and we collided in midair. Jamie flew backward off her tube and tumbled into the water below. Through sheer willpower, I held fast to the right strap with one hand floating in the air behind the tube. That instant was surprisingly glorious, despite my fear. I soared above the lake like a great blue heron. Then I looked down at the water, rushing up to meet me and had just enough time to think. A wet sack full of rocks, before I hit the surface, lost my grip of the tube, and plunged into the blackness below. The sudden silence beneath the water was absolute, I'd never thought of it before, but falling from a bright, vibrant world of motors and screams and rushing wind into a black, suffocating void of weightlessness was truly unnerving. I wondered if that's what death felt like. Thankfully, my life vest wouldn't allow further musings, and I floated back toward the surface. Crashing back into that world of noise and color was equally violent, and I struggled for a moment to regain my bearings. I saw Jamie bobbing in the distance, waving her arms above her head in my direction. I turned and saw the boat slowly advancing. I sighed, selfishly thankful that I'd fallen closer to the boat, but as my dad and Ben drew closer, I realized they weren't slowing down. Dad smiled down at me as they approached. I forced a smile back.
8: We're gonna go pick up your cousin, Tommy. Ladies first, you know? Sorry about that, little cuz. But don't worry, the water doesn't
7: bite. Ben grinned at me as they floated by. My smile disappeared. I tried to focus on the boat as it puttered over to Jamie and the two men pulled her in. But I couldn't stop imagining the vast expanse below me. That deep, black silence and whatever lurked within it. Each kick of my legs treading water was terrifying. I had no idea where the accident happened, but my fear... That nagging, smothering terror that was slowly wrenching away control of my brain was certain I'd fallen in the exact same spot. What's more, that fear had no doubt that the body of the dog was floating a few inches beneath my kicking toes, just out of reach. Maybe it was tangled in the lakeweed, suspended several feet below the surface, slowly being devoured by hungry larvae and squirming eels. And if that were true... Wouldn't it take much more than the kicks of a panicked boy treading water to jostle it free, to sever the feeble connection between rotting flesh and thin, delicate plant? The fear didn't think so. And if that happened, the corpse would likely have enough air left in its bloated lungs to float to the surface, swaying back and forth slowly, surely, and directly into the kicking legs that set it free.
8: Hey, doofus! you want
7: back in or not? Ben spoke from somewhere above me. I turned around and found the boat idling right behind me. I'd completely lost track of them while daydreaming. Watch it, Ben. Dad reached his hand over the ladder that led down the side of the boat. Grab on, Tom. I beamed and did as I was told, grabbing my dad's hand with my left and the ladder with the other. I lifted my right foot onto the bottom rung of the ladder, and as my dad pulled me in, I kicked hard with my left foot to boost myself up. And that's when I felt it. I kicked something hard, just beneath the surface of the water. Something hairy. Dad lifted me up and deposited me on the deck, then walked up to the helm of the boat. I'd gone numb. I stood where my dad had placed me, staring forward barely able to breathe
4: (laughs) you're done for the day buddy boy
7: dad laughed as he pushed ben out of the way and reclaimed his seat at the helm as he started up the engine and put the boat into gear i took a deep breath and exhaled it slowly gathering my courage i had to look before we left i had to see i turned and walked to the ladder gripped the side of the boat and peered over the edge There was only dark water below. But as we pulled away and the motor began to cover the surface with froth and ripples, I thought I saw something else. A few feet beneath the surface, there were two shimmering circles, like light reflecting off coins or eyes. That night, I had a terrible nightmare. In the dream, I was the one tangled up in lakeweed trapped beneath the surface of a lake. When I looked up, I could see the faint moonbeams dissipating into the water above me, but all around me there was only deep, murky darkness. I tried to pull my legs free of the weeds, but they were tangled too tight. I reached down and tore at the plants wrapped around my legs, but each time I pulled one off, another coiled around my ankle to replace it. I tried to scream, but no sound came. Panicking, I reached for the moonlight, and I kicked with my legs as hard as I could, trying to shake them free of the grasping weeds and to push myself upward toward the air and the light. And Then I heard it. Somewhere, far below me, deep in the endless void of blackness, the wolfhound bellowed. I looked down, but there was no decomposing corpse floating up to meet me. There was only darkness, and eyes. In the depths, staring back at me, were the two shining circles I'd seen off the side of the boat. Too deep to reflect the moonlight, they shone from within, blazing with the fire of hatred, and they were growing. It was coming closer. The darkness beside the glowing orbs slowly cracked, widening into an uneven yellow crescent. For a moment, I thought the moon was somehow reflecting back at me, shimmering from the deep. But as it grew closer, I realized what the strange crescent was. It was a mouth. The dog was smiling at me. It was grinning. The crescent split lengthwise, revealing two rows of long, jagged fangs, and began to grow even faster. The dog was charging, its mouth wide, it was rushing to meet me and finish what it started with Jamie. Only this time there was no rope. This time it would have me. Its mouth continued to open wider and wider, impossibly wide, wide enough to swallow me whole. And as my legs disappeared into its jaws, it let out its awful, bellowing bark, then bit down. I sat up in bed, sweating, and looked around my room for the rotting dog, I couldn't see anything. The few shafts of moonlight that penetrated the trees outside my window dappled the floor beside my bed, but otherwise my room was as dark as the lake in my dream. My legs were tangled up in the sheets and blankets, so I kicked them off of me, leaned over, and turned on the lamp on my bedside table. Light flooded the empty room. There was no dog. Just to be certain, I jumped out of bed, got down on my hands and knees, and forced myself to look beneath it. There was nothing there but a few loose Legos and a dusty striped tube sock. I got up, walked to the closet, and after a couple deep breaths, swung it open and looked inside. Just a handful of wire hangers and a lonely yellow raincoat crumpled in the corner. I closed the closet door, sat down on the end of my bed, and let my shoulders slump. I grasped the bedspread beneath me and froze, every muscle in my body tensed. It, it could be any dog, I told myself. The lake must have hundreds of cams dotted along its shore. At least half of them likely contain a dog or two in the summer months. Nonetheless, I held my breath and listened, certain the next sound would be the bellow of the wolfhound, and that it would come from right outside my bedroom window. A chill ran through my body at the thought. But when the dog barked again, it sounded nothing like the roar of the wolfhound last summer, or the one in my dream. It was higher, sharper. It was only then that I noticed I was sitting where Belle should have been sleeping. I looked up at the bedroom door. It was half open. I jumped out of bed, stepped into my sneakers, and rushed into the main room of the cabin, turning on the hallway overhead light as I passed it. The back door was open a crack as well. The barks were coming from out there, down by the lake. I tiptoed across the room, careful to avoid the creaky boards. All of the other bedroom doors were shut, but I didn't want to take any chances. Belle had gotten out twice last summer, and each time I'd been grounded for not shutting my door until it clicked. She never went far, but we'd always have to put on our clothes in the middle of the night and sneak through backyards whispering her name until we found her rummaging through a neighbor's garbage or attacking crayfish in the shallows. I slipped out the back door and carefully sealed it shut behind me, certain to pull it in until it latched. I'd hopefully only be gone for a minute, but I didn't want my voice or Bell's barks floating through the open door and waking anyone else up. She was still barking down there. It was a steady repetition. Bark, 5 seconds. Bark, 5 seconds. Bark. I couldn't see her. A small group of trees blocked my view of the shoreline, but she didn't seem frenzied or, or panicked. Her bark sounded more like a warning, an attempt to bring attention to something. I stepped off the porch onto the grass and followed the sound of bells barking. I rounded the patch of trees that blocked my view from the porch and saw her shape a few feet away from the water, silhouetted against a circle of moonlight that shimmered on the surface of a lake. She looked small and scared. Hey, Belzy. I whispered as soothingly as possible, not wanting to startle her as I crept down the lawn. If I came toward her too fast, she might think we were playing a game of chase and run off into the light. I didn't like that she was standing beside the lake, but I'd like chasing her around it for the next hour even less. She barked in response. Hey, it's okay, girl. There's nothing out there. Don't worry. I was more than a little worried myself. I tried to tell my dad what happened the day before as we rode back to shore, but he'd only chuckled and told me to take it easy on the horror movies. That Monsters, ghosts, and especially zombie dogs weren't real. He said if I needed to use my imagination, I'd be better off using it to imagine all the things I could have kicked that weren't a dead dog. His certainty had calmed me, and by the time we'd gotten back to shore, I'd been able to convince myself that I'd kicked nothing more than a submerged buoy or a mossy log that had become saturated enough to bob just beneath the surface. Once we settled around the kitchen table for dinner, those reflective circles I'd seen staring back at me were nothing more than the scales of a large fish, or even more likely, just the waning daylight reflecting off ripples." Now, though, in the pitch darkness of a near-moonless sky, my dog standing guard by the shore of the lake, barking warnings out into the night air, my calm, logical explanations felt desperate and absurd. Belle feared something, and she wanted me to know that I should be scared, too. But as I inched close enough to make out the fullness of her shape, I saw she wasn't barking toward the lake at all. She was barking at me. Come on, Belle What did I do? I got close enough to reach out and place a hand on her head. She nuzzled into it, so I knelt down, put my arm around her neck, and rubbed her belly the way she liked. She pressed her full weight into me and whimpered. What's wrong, girl? Come back to bed, okay? It's cold out here. She lifted her head and looked into my eyes. Even the friendliest dogs are uncomfortable making extended eye contact, continually looking down for brief moments to express their submission. But Belle held my gaze for several seconds. It felt as if she were trying to tell me something with that look. But whatever her message, I didn't receive it. And after another moment, she licked my cheek and then yawned. I smiled and scratched behind her ear. Belle's eyes suddenly darted to the left, over my shoulder. I felt her body stiffen. A low warning growl rumbled deep in her chest. She barked again, sharply. I followed her gaze and realized she hadn't been barking at me after all. She'd been barking past me. She'd been barking at the house. A thought occurred to me then. What if I'd been so worried about a magical zombie dog that I'd ignored the real reason that doors were left open, the thing that actually had Belle so riled up? What if someone had broken in? I grabbed Belle by the collar and guided her up the grassy slope toward the back porch. She pulled against me at first, but with a little coaxing she followed, whimpering. When we reached the steps of the back porch, Belle sat down and dug her front paws into the earth. I whispered to her soothingly and pulled on her collar again, but she wouldn't budge. She just sat there, staring at the back door. Fine, you imp, but don't you move a muscle until I call for you, okay? Stay. (coughs) I showed her my palm, the command for don't run away again, dammit, and then started up the steps. I didn't want to go in without her. Heck, I didn't want to go in at all. I was terrified. But if there was an intruder in there with my sleeping family, I had to try to warn them. I reached the top of the back staircase, then stopped. Staring at the door, it was open again. Had the intruder left? Had he been spooked when I woke up and walked through the house? Had he hidden somewhere, waited until I got down by the lake, then slipped out the way he'd come in? There was only one way to find out, I supposed. Besides, I didn't really have anywhere else to go. I glanced over at Belle. She was still sitting at the foot of the steps like a good girl, but I didn't like the look on her face. I took a deep breath, stepped over the threshold, and then slipped. I reached out and barely grasped the door handle to save myself from falling back out the door and down the porch steps. I pulled myself back to my feet and looked down. There was water everywhere. Dirty, oily-looking water. The doormat was soaked through, and there was a streak trail of liquid leading into the house, as if some waterlogged thing had been dragged along the floor of the living room. A cold wave of numbness crept through my body, as if I'd been submerged in ice water from the inside out. The trail went into my bedroom. I stood breathing heavily, staring at my open bedroom door and the path of the dark viscous water that led inside. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to run. I wanted to wake up my dad, to have him come out and make it all go away. And even now, I believe it would have. He'd tell me I was almost a teenager, and finally, that monsters weren't real, and he'd be right. Whatever was waiting in my room was mine, and if my dad woke up, put on his pants, and stepped out into the reality of the living room, it wouldn't be there anymore, but it would come back. The truth is, I knew there was a dead dog in my room, just as kids everywhere know that there are things that hide in our closets, lurk under our beds. And live, truly live in our nightmares. Maybe the shadows we see out of the corners of our eyes, the shapes moving in the dark. Maybe they are really there, but only if we allow them to be there. I believed there was a monster in my room, and so there was, but only because I believed it. It existed because of my fear and the only way to get it to go away, to leave for good, was to stop being afraid. I'd been too scared to act when the dog charged at Jamie, and I'd let that fear turn into anger. Now that anger had turned into something else, I'd brought this upon myself, and I had to fix it by myself. I stepped to the left of the trail of liquid and followed it toward my room, My door stood open as I'd left it, but the bedside lamp had been turned off. It was dark in there. I pushed the door open, and a shaft of light from the hallway overhead flooded into the room. The dead dog was at the end of my bed, sitting as calmly and politely as if I'd asked it to stay, just like Belle. It looked as I'd known it would soaking wet. Loaded and sallow, rotting in some places, chewed and torn up apart in others. Most of its fur and some of its skin had sloughed off, revealing large, jagged wounds spewing tendrils of shredded, dangling muscle. Ivory shards of bone poked through the skin in more than a few places. The dog's landing hadn't been any gentler than its owner's. A chunk of lip had been torn away on the left side of the dog's face, giving it a permanent, sinister-looking snarl. Its eyes weren't glowing like they had in my dream. They were white, clouded over, and dull. One of them had been partially chewed away by some creature of the lake, making it look like the dog was winking, letting me in on some funny little secret. The dog stared at me as if it had been waiting for me which I supposed it had. I'd opened the door confident in what i had to do, but looking into the cold, dead eyes of the dog wrenched my certainty away, and the old familiar fear started to creep in to take its place. I clenched my fist and took a deep, settling breath. Tears began to roll down my cheeks, I wiped them with my sleeve and stood as tall as I could. I tried to shout, but it came out as little more than a whisper. You're not supposed to be here. You're dead. You died in the lake, and that's where you have to go. The dog cocked its head to one side. A thick yellow liquid dribbled out of its ear onto the comforter. You heard me. You have to go back to the lake. The dog stared back at me, unmoved. I know you were only protecting your home, okay? I I know you really didn't want to hurt anybody. You're just a dog, but I'm I'm just a kid, and I don't want to hurt you either. I'm just... I was so scared. Tears welled up in my eyes once more. You made me feel scared and helpless, and I lost my temper, but I didn't mean it, okay? I'm sorry, and I'm sorry this happened to you. I'm sure you were a good dog, but you don't belong here. So please, just go away. The dog yawned silently, opening its jaws wide, revealing rows of menacing teeth. But only a stump where its tongue should be. Its tongue had been eaten. My stomach turned over, but I kept going. I'm not afraid of you anymore. You can't hurt me. You can't do anything to me. You're not real anymore, so just leave. I took a step forward to prove I meant it and the dog's mangled lips curled back into a silent snarl. My breath caught in my throat, but I stood my ground. I stared into the dog's eyes, and it stared into mine. Like Belle, it made no move to look away, and neither did I. After what felt like an eternity, the dog began to make a noise that sounded like it was choking. Its mouth stood slightly open, and its lips still pulled back teeth on full display, but no longer in a snarling, threatening manner. It was closer to a grin, and then I realized what the choking noise was. It was laughing at me. The dead dog got to its feet, still chortling as a rush of reddish-black liquid poured from an open wound in its abdomen, soaking the bedspread and tripping onto the floor, forming into a grisly pool beneath the bed. It stared into my eyes for another heavy moment, then leapt off the bed into the puddle and padded toward me. My body tightened, bracing for an attack. The dog veered slightly at the last second and passed out the bedroom door. I felt its soft, slimy flesh slide against my leg as it went by, and then listened to its heavy, wet footsteps as it padded toward the back door. I turned to watch it go but it was already gone. There was no streaked path of liquid leading toward my bedroom and the back door was firmly shut. I turned back toward my room. The bedside light had been turned back on, the bedspread was dry, and the sickening puddle beneath my bed was no longer there. The tears I'd been holding back burst free and I fell to the ground. I held my knees and rocked back and forth, sobbing uncontrollably. It was gone, if it had ever been there at all, and it wouldn't be back. It had returned to the lake, and I was almost certain someone would find it washed up on the shore within the next couple of days. It didn't need to be undead, unreal, or unfound anymore. It could just be. It had gotten what it came for and left. Only, what had it come for? I stopped crying. It had scared me. Hurt me as I heard it, but I had rebuked it. I had forgiven it, and I thought it had forgiven me. But if so, why had it laughed, grinning at me as it stalked off toward the lake? And I leapt to my feet and sprinted for the back door. Forgetting my sleeping family, I flung the door open, slamming it against the wall in the process, and stepped out onto the back porch. Bell, was gone. Bell. My voice echoed back to me from across the still, silent lake. Belle, no! Please, come back! Will she loose again? I spun around to find Ben, rubbing sleep from his eyes. My dad and Jamie were stumbling out of their rooms as well.
8: Man, you are terrible with dogs, huh?
7: Dad put his arm around me.
8: It's all right, pal. It was an accident. We'll find her, don't worry.
7: I loved my dad for being kind and supportive. He could tell I was upset, even if he didn't truly know why. But he was wrong. We wouldn't find Belle. The dog hadn't come for me, after all. He'd come for Belle, and I think she'd sensed it. She refused to enter the house, instead barking by the lake, trying to get my attention. Maybe to protect me, maybe just to say goodbye. All of us went looking for her that night, even Ben. We scoured the shoreline, whispering her name as loud as we were willing to risk in the quiet morning hours. We searched around our neighbor's lawns, paying special attention to their trash bins and compost areas. We searched all night, we searched the next day. When it came time to drive home, we spoke to all our neighbors and asked them to call us if she showed up in the coming week. My dad was sure we'd hear something. I wasn't. Two days later, my dad got a call from a friend who lived across the lake. He glanced at me nervously while he listened to the person on the other end of the phone. After a few questions, however, he relaxed. A dog had washed up on the shore the previous night, but it was heavily rotted and bloated, as if it had been in the water for weeks. What's more, it was a big dog. The neighbor couldn't quite make out the breed, but I already knew. It was a wolfhound. No one ever found a trace of Bell. not a single footstep in the wet earth. No hair, no scat, not a sound or a sighting. Nothing. They never found my dog.
0: The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member.